Continuing to listen to the Crusades through Muslim eyes, which can be accessed at islamiclegacy.org. Let's listen. Amalric and his knights charge the center in the traditional Frankish manner. Shirkul orders the center to pull back, and Salahuddin pretends to flee, drawing the knights who follow in hot pursuit. The left and right flanks of the Syrian army emerge behind the knights, cutting them off from the rest of the army. Salahuddin turns the center wing around to face the knights, completing the trap. Amalric's knights are decimated. The king barely escapes with his own life. But there was much more training to come for the young Salahuddin. He was given the extremely difficult task of holding the port of Alexandria with only 1,000 men against Frankish attack for three months. It was during this campaign that the Franks took notice of Salahuddin, not only for his courage and skill in battle, but his unique sense of honor and justice. Meanwhile, Shirku and his armies rode day and night at dizzying speeds, fighting campaign after campaign until they were able to rid Egypt of all opposition. Sadly, just two months after his final victory, Shirku was taken ill and died. The advisors of the Shiite Khalifa chose Salahuddin to be emir because he was the youngest and seemingly the most inexperienced and weakest of the emirs of the army. If that was their intention, then they had not understood this young man in the least. Within a year, Salahuddin had replaced all potentially disloyal officials around him with trusted confidants. He crushed a revolt led by Egyptian troops and repelled Amalric's fifth and final attempt to take Egypt. Salahuddin became the unchallenged master of Egypt. And then the course of history took a mighty turn. Nuruddin passed away suddenly, leaving his 11-year-old son Asale as his successor. The Frankish king Amalric followed suit, bequeathing his kingdom to Baldwin, his 13-year-old son, afflicted with the terrible disease of leprosy. Perhaps the most serious challenge to Salahuddin's dominance would have come from Manuel the emperor and leader of the powerful Byzantine army. But the Byzantines were crushed by Arslan II, the grandson of Kilij Arslan. Manuel died soon after and he took with him his dreams of conquering all of Syria and Egypt. The responsibility to lead the Muslim nation against the Crusaders fell to Salahuddin. Chapter 9. Salahuddin ibn Ayyub Although the Sultan Salahuddin ibn Ayyub was short, small, and frail, his often melancholy face would light up with a comforting smile that would bring peace and ease to those around him. Like Nuruddin, his personal observance of Islam was supremely strict, and yet he was lenient and forgiving to the faults of others, except when it came to dealing with those who insulted Islam, whether they be heretical Muslims or the Franks. In this, he was more merciless than his predecessor. 
the sultan kept around him those who were learned in the religion of sound mind and character and imparted wisdom in the most critical moments. The most well-known of them was Baha'uddin ibn Shaddad. Ibn Shaddad memorized the Quran under the eminent Hafiz Abu Bakr Yahya ibn Sadun of the Spanish city of Cordoba. He was also a noted muhadith, jurist of the Shafi Fiqh and the Qadi of Aleppo. The Sultan was very fond of reading the Quran. When he passed the night in his tent, he used to charge the Mamluk on guard to read him two, three, or four sections of the Quran. Upon hearing the Quran, his heart would melt, and tears would flow down his cheeks. He was also devoted to reading and studying Hadith, and was especially interested in studying the chain of narrators. If one of the scholars of Islam visited the court, he received him personally. He would command all those who were present to be seated, including his sons, as well as the Mamluks on duty, to listen to the traditions recited as a sign of respect. If any of the scholars of Hadith were such characters as do not frequent the gates of the sultans, or were unwilling to present themselves in such places, Salahuddin would go himself to seek them out and listen to them. When he was at Alexandria, he often visited Hafiz al-Isfahani and learned from him a great number of hadith. Twice a week the sultan would sit in public, surrounded by jurists, qadis, and men learned in the law to administer justice. Everyone who had a grievance, regardless of age, status, or wealth, was admitted. He never sent away those who came to complain or demand redress. Rather, he would receive with his own hand their petitions, listen to them carefully, and write on each one the terms that Allah suggested to him. The Sultan's mercy extended to all, both the Muslims and the Franks. Christian chroniclers devoted numerous passages to the admiration of Salahuddin and his justice. They openly lament the absence of an equal character among the Christians. In fact, the Franks had such difficulty reconciling their love for Salahuddin with their traditional hatred for the enemy that they made up stories about his true origins. According to Crusader legend, Salahuddin was the grandson of a beautiful French princess forced to marry a valiant Turk, whom the Franks named Malakin. Chapter 10. Renald of Châtillon and the Templar Knights the death of the Christian king Amalric and the succession of the impotent Baldwin the leper brought about a power struggle between two Christian factions. One faction was led by Ramon of Tiberias, who desired peaceful coexistence with the Muslims. Ramon was a very dark-skinned, hawk-nosed knight that spoke Arabic fluently and had acquired reading and writing skills during years of captivity under the Muslims. Ramon could easily have passed for a Syrian emir, except for his large stature that betrayed his western origins. The other faction was led by Renaud of Châtillon, another knight that had migrated from France during the Second Crusade. Historians describe Renaud as fanatical and greedy, with an insatiable appetite for conspiracy and bloodlust. He aroused more hatred between Muslims and Christians single-handedly than decades of war and killing. Renault had led the right-wing Christians that had recently migrated from the West. Most of these men had not been tempered by years of living side by side with Muslims, so they perceived the politics of the situation in simple terms, black and white. The Muslims were the enemy, 
and they had to be exterminated. There was no other acceptable aim or outcome. Renault enjoyed considerable influence thanks to the support of the Templars, as well as newly arriving knights. But his influence was counterbalanced by Ramon's imposing presence, the respect he commanded due to his wisdom, courage, and experience. The relationship of trust between Ramon and Baldwin the Leper King maintained stability in the region for a short while. Then Baldwin died, and the throne eventually fell to Guy de Lusignan, a handsome but dim-witted Frenchman who was extremely susceptible to bullying. Guy de Lusignan was a puppet in the hands of Renaud of Châtillon and the militant Templars. Renaud took advantage of the circumstances and began a campaign of pillage and rape, targeting Muslim merchants and pilgrims alike. Despite a truce allowing the free circulation of goods, Renaud would swoop down on caravans unprovoked, massacring its people and confiscating all of its merchandise. At first, Salahuddin complained to Guy, but he ignored his protestations and did nothing. Renaud grew bolder yet. He declared his intention to raid the holy cities of Mecca and Medina and kidnap the body of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. In 1186, he captured a caravan en route to Mecca, massacred all the armed men, and led the remaining captives to his fort of Karak. When some of them dared to remind him of the truce, he remarked, Let your Muhammad come and deliver you. Salahuddin had been much disturbed by the previous actions of Renaud, but now Renaud had crossed a line, daring to insult the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Salahuddin swore that he would kill Renaud with his own hands. He would make good on his promise. Renaud had willfully and deliberately broken the truce between the Muslims and the Christians. Salahuddin could read the writing on the wall. It was only a matter of time before the region would be brought to war. The Sultan sent messengers to all the emirs in the land of Islam, bearing the same message. The Frange had treacherously flouted their commitments. It was time for the Muslim nation to gather all its might and power to fight in the jihad against the Crusaders. Chapter 11. A Clever Ruse Many a Muslim leader had underestimated the Frankish knight, especially his ability to charge into the midst of an army with terrific momentum, lance firmly entrenched in his underarm, body anchored against his high back saddle. He was a human fortress, laced with heavy armor from head to toe. Over the many years that Frankish knights had fought with the Muslims, they learned many lessons. They kept close together in a box-like formation and placed their foot soldiers on the outside perimeter to protect their horses. The knights were patient and their actions deliberate. Even a hundred knights presented a formidable opponent. This time there would be thousands, and among them the fanatical Templars and Hospitallers. It was for this very occasion that Salahuddin had recruited a special breed of Mameluke warriors. Only 1,500 strong, but they were known for their speed, agility, and physical prowess. They wore light armor and rode the fastest horses in the land. Under the desert sun, they trained day in and day out until they learned to move effortlessly across the desert dunes. Salahuddin must have been wondering if his Mameluke warriors were ready to take on the knights. 
The Christians had gathered their forces in response to the Muslim call for jihad. They were garrisoned among the lush, watered gardens of Safuria. They occupied a position of strength from which they could repulse Muslim attacks with ease. No, the battle must not be fought at Safuria. It must be on the burning sands of Galilee, where the mobile, lightly armored, and lightning-fast Mamluks were at their strongest against the slower, heavily-laden, iron-clad knights. But with experienced leaders like Ramon of Tiberias and Balian of Ibelin, how was one to draw them out into the desert and willingly abandon their position of strength? That was almost as hard as winning the war itself. Salahuddin's spies provided the answer. Tension between Ramon of Tiberias and the right-wing Renaud of Châtillon were at an all-time high. They reported the installation of a new king, the weak-minded coward named Guy de Lusignan. Was it possible that these experienced men would choose such a man to be their king and commander? The only explanation was that he was a puppet in the hands of the hawks. In that case, challenging the foolish pride of the new king may be the answer. Far from Safaria, across the desert plains of Hattin, lay Ramon's castle at Tiberias. There, the Lady Eschiva remained alone and unprotected. Would the Christians come to the rescue of this damsel in distress? Salahuddin took a calculated risk and laid siege to the castle. Now it was a matter of waiting for the Christians to make the next move. When Guy de Lusignan heard of the siege, he assembled his counselors. This situation called into question a fundamental law of the kingdom, that the king had an obligation to go to the aid of a vassal if threatened by Muslim attack. This wasn't just any law, but the foundation on which the kingdom was established in the Christian outposts. How could small, outlying territories survive in the Muslim world without certain knowledge that the whole Christian state would come to the rescue of the smallest part? As a king, nobody would trust him if he did not go to the aid of the Lady Eschiva. But Count Ramon recognized Salahuddin's strategy at once. He called for quiet, and then spoke with authority. He pointed out Salahuddin's strategy. Salahuddin was simply baiting them out into the open. The sultan would never harm his wife. All they had to do was sit tight and refuse to be drawn out of Safuria. Salahuddin would eventually tire and return home. If they marched out on the waterless plateau between Safuria and Tiberias with full strength, then they would risk a disaster of such magnitude that it would destroy the entire colonization of the Holy Land and betray the martyrs of the First Crusade. For a while, common sense and Ramon's eloquent words hung in the air, but the hawks used their guile to twist and confuse the minds of the people. They accused Ramon of being a Muslim and an ally of Salahuddin in secret. Why else would he not be concerned about the safety of his own wife? The king bowed to their threats and issued orders to march to Tiberias. Salahuddin's strategy worked. Chapter 12 The Battle of Hattin The emirs came from the farthest corners of Muslim lands to answer the call for jihad. From east of the Euphrates came Muzaffar al-Din Gukburi. 
from Damascus, the Mamluk Emir, Sarim al-Din Kaimatz, and from Aleppo, Badr al-Din Dildirim. They came to join Salahuddin and his Mamluk warriors in what they knew to be a decisive confrontation with the Crusader Knights. In the early hours of the 3rd of July, 1187, Salahuddin's scouts observed the Christian camp coming to life with intense activity. The enemy is preparing to march forth. Salahuddin is praying Fajr, the dawn prayer outside the ruined walls of Tiberias when the messengers arrive. He is elated on the one hand, but feels the incredible responsibility on the other. He mounts his warhorse and sprints for six miles till he reaches Kafir Sap, where his command center is situated. Light forces have already been sent out by their wing commanders Takiuddin and Muzaffar Uddin Gukpuri to harass the Franks. Their aim is not to turn the Crusaders back, but to slow them down so the natural elements have their fullest impact. The Christian army is the largest assembled in the history of Jerusalem. It travels in three sections. The leading section, or vanguard, of the army is commanded by Raymond of Tripoli and his personal contingent of knights. The center is occupied by King Guy de Lusignan, along with the bishops of Acre and Lida holding the true cross. The rear guard is commanded by Balian of Ibelin and includes the Templars and Hospitallers. As expected, the knights are traveling in a big block, with the infantry forming a perimeter around them to guard the horses from direct attack. The pace of this massive army is being constrained by the infantry. This works in favor of the Muslims. Although the Christians set out in the cool early hours of the morning, it isn't long before the direct heat of the sun begins to take its toll. The Eastern Knights have learned to cover their armor with loose-colored garments like the Muslims, but some of the Westerners haven't yet adapted to the conditions and begin to suffer considerably. Now is the time to strike. The Mamluk cavalry flood down the slopes and across the plains towards the Christian columns. They dart in and out, firing their arrows at the warhorses, unseating the heavy knights onto the scorching desert sand, then withdrawing, melting out of sight. Salahuddin, almost imperceptibly, begins to feed more and more of his legions of Mamluks into the front line. The Christians behold an awesome sight. Wave after wave of Muslim warriors stream down the slopes, sprinting towards them. As the day progresses, the Franks begin to feel the exhaustion from the heat, the thirst, the constant shower of arrows from the sky. They are counter-attacking with all the ferocity they can muster, but the Muslim cavalry shows no signs of weakening. In fact, they grow stronger and stronger. By midday, the sun is directly overhead. The heat is unbearable. Their armor is scorching hot, and all of the water in the small bottles is gone. 
They have been marching for six hours, and now they are stuck out in the open on a level field completely exposed. At the front of the army, the wise and experienced Raymond knows that staying on this barren plain without shade or water is suicide. The knights must press on towards water, meaning they would have to sprint, leaving the infantry behind to their death and the rear guard cut off. That meant the Templars and the Hospitallers would bear the brunt of the Muslim attack. But in the interests of saving the bulk of the army, this was perfectly acceptable. But the rear guard had come to its own decision. They are a fair distance behind and suffering from continuous pounding from Gukburi's men. They pause to allow their knights to charge into the Muslim concentrations to break them up. Guy orders a full stop. Now Ramon loses his composure. Has the king gone completely mad? The whole army is trapped in the desert, surrounded and outnumbered by the Muslims. This is insane. Ramon decides to break away from the main body by charging into the midst of Takiuddin. Salahuddin is aware that if a large number of knights get away and manage to re-establish themselves in a defensive position near water, then the whole tide of the war could turn. So far, the son of Ayub has been content to harass the enemy to slow their progress down, allowing the heat and the thirst to take their toll. But now, he must strike with full force if the knights are to be prevented from reaching water. That is it for today. Please remember to leave a review and rating wherever you listen and to remember to share the podcast with your family and friends. We are on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and we're also on YouTube as a voice-only channel. Please join our Islamic Audio Bytes community on Instagram and Twitter and follow me on Facebook as well. Do check out our website at islamicaudiobytes.com and if you would like to contact me directly, please do so at sisterb 7 at gmail.com. Hope your day is full of goodness. Asalaamu Alaikum.